Open your Bibles to John chapter 17, please. We're going to finish John 17 this morning. I'm going to be out next Sunday. Dennis is building the pulpit next Sunday for me, and uh, I'm going to be getting away for a few days. And then when I come back, as I told you a few weeks ago, the, uh, the intention is to begin a five-week series, take a break here in John. We're at a nice breaking point at the end of the Upper Room Discourse, which, by the way, we've spent a year going through, so it's time for a break. And uh, we're going to take a five weeks to go through the uh, core values statement that we passed out a few weeks ago. We will pass it out again, uh, not this coming, but the week when I get back, and we'll probably put it in the bulletin each week for those five weeks, so you'll have plenty of copies to plaster all over your house, okay? um, But that way, if there's somebody who wasn't here the week before, they'll have it, the whole document, and be able to understand where we're going and why we're doing this. So that's the plans for the uh, month of August and, and into September. The topic of prayer is a popular topic these days. If you look in, you go into a Christian bookstore and you sort of peruse their their bestseller section, or you look in some of the catalog book distributors and some of their most popular sellers, you find that books on prayer, or there are several books on prayer out there that are that are in the top ten in these things, or at least in the top twenty. So prayer is a, is, a, is a popular topic today in uh, the evangelical church. And the books that have been written, some of them are uh, extremely helpful, very helpful books. Some of them are positively pitiful. And uh, so, you know, you need to be discerning. Just because a book sits on the shelf doesn't make it good. Um, but the books that sit on our shelves in our bookstore indeed are good. And uh, we stock a very narrow and limited selection of things that the elders believe that would be helpful for your spiritual growth. And there are a number of books out there on prayer that we would commend to you. We all know we're supposed to pray. That's kind of common knowledge to the Christian life. So that's no news for you there. And we all want our prayers to be effective, don't we? We want a sense that we are connecting with God in prayer and that there's really going to something happen out of this and we're not just beating our gums and, and uh, going on our way. And one way to, to, to know that our prayers are effective is to pray according to biblical prayers, to take prayers from the scriptures properly interpreted and use those as a pattern by which to shape our own prayer life. And we have one such lengthy prayer before us here in John 17. We've been, uh, we've been after this now for a few weeks. And as I say, we'll finish this morning. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 20 through 26 together as we finish up the chapter. But we began uh, last week in verse 6 looking at this prayer. And, and we noted there were five observations that we wanted to make from Jesus' prayer priorities. This is, this is the last prayer, uh, public prayer recorded of, of His uh, other than the short prayers from the cross to, uh, to the Father. And so there is much we can learn uh, from this prayer and much uh, that we can, can uh, model off of this prayer so that we can pray more effectively. 
just by way of review, in this whole chapter 17 prayer breaks down really into three uh, sections or segments. Verses 1 through 5 is, is Jesus' prayer for himself, as it's most commonly uh, said. And, and that is a, he's praying about his cross work. He's looking to the cross. He's praying about that. And he's, he's praying that that cross work would bring glory to the Father. And so he's praying for himself, but he's praying that, that, that what he's going to do will ultimately bring glory to God the Father. The second section, verses 6 through 19, which we looked at last week, his prayer really turns from himself to focusing on the 11, on these apostles who he's leaving behind. They are given to him by God, and they're given to him for a purpose. And the purpose is to pass on the work that he has begun. And so he's praying very diligently in verses 6 through 19 for these apostles. He, he's asking the Father to protect them. He's asking the Father to sanctify them. And he's, and he's asking the Father to accomplish the mission through them. Verse 18, he says is he, he is sending them out into the world just like he's been sent out. And he wants them to be effective in the, in the mission before them. Then in verse 20, he, he looks even wider than the 11, and he looks to you and I. He looks beyond these immediate uh, disciples, these immediate apostles, his messengers, and he begins to have in view the people of God through the age of the church, which uh, is coming on 2,000 years now. So he had a lot of people on his mind in this section of his prayer. It widens significantly. Untold millions of believers down through the ages who have faithfully carried on the mission that he had first given to the apostles and then later to them. So this morning, as he is praying, as we go through this together, he's praying for us. So this is an extremely applicable section of his high priestly prayer. Structurally, as we look at verses 20 through 26, the two remaining observations that we want to draw from this section are that the twofold prayer request really is a prayer request for unity and a prayer request for what I'm calling destiny. He's praying with regard to our unity and he's praying with regard to our destiny. And so as we look at these things together, we can come to see their significance for us in our lives. So, fourth observation out of the text, Jesus establishes the disciples' unity. Again, normally as we go through the scriptures together, we go verse by verse, clause by clause, sometimes word by word, just trying to pick it apart, understand what it is, put it all back together. But I'm not going to do that this morning. When I, I go through this section on unity, I think I want to do it more thematically. I want to look at this topic of unity that Jesus is praying for, and I want to do it a little more thematically together. And I want to do it through a series of questions. So, so under this observation number four, I'm going to have to give you a series of questions. And I will raise the question and then I will try to answer it. We will go through John 17 here, but we will also be looking at some other verses as well to pull this whole section together. Okay? So let's do it that way. Let me just ask you the first question. What is Christian unity? He's praying for our unity. In fact, let me just read the text beginning at verse 20 and following. Jesus said, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, and that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, 
that the word world may know that you have sent me and have loved me even as or have loved them rather even as you have loved me father i desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where i am in order that they may behold my glory which you have given me for you have loved me before the foundation of the world O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Okay, so the theme of unity is huge in this section. And let's begin to address that. So my first question, what is Christian unity? The short answer for Christian unity is a oneness in, in purpose and a oneness in relationship. Christian unity is oneness in, in purpose and relationship. Being one with the Father, one with, uh, with the triune God in relationship, and, one be, and being one or united with Him in the purposes that He has within this world. That is what it means to have Christian unity. To be one with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. To be in relationship with Him. And to be united with Him in what He is about. Also to be united in in purpose and united in relationship with other believers. So it's got a vertical sense to it and it's got a horizontal sense to it. This unity, this oneness. Vertically with the Godhead, horizontally with other believers who are also related vertically to the Godhead. Have you ever, have you ever noticed this, and those of you who have traveled, that you can travel um, across the country, you can travel across the world, and you can meet other believers, and within a very short period of time, you just have this sense of oneness with them. Have you noticed that before? You, you meet them, you talk a little bit, and, and you just have an instant sense in which, hey, we're all part of the same deal here. I mean, you, you have a different language than me, you eat different kinds of food, you dress differently, you, know, you, you work at different kinds of occupations, you, you do many things differently than I do, but there is still a sense in which we are very much one, this Christian fellowship. This is, this is true because we are one. What we experience horizontally, relationally, is true because of that vertical relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So it is a, what is Christian unity? It is a oneness of relationship, a oneness of purpose. And it is made a reality, beloved, and go ahead and turn here to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It is made a reality theologically through... The work of the Holy Spirit of God. Paul, speaking to the church at Corinth, who had many, many problems, not the least of which was uh, they couldn't get along with one another. And he's addressing that most serious issue here in 1 Corinthians 12. And in verse 12 and 13, he makes a statement that has profound implications for believers all through the ages. Those for whom Jesus had prayed there in prior to his crucifixion. He says, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12, For even as the body is one 
and yet has many members. He's talking about the human body. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by or in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. At the moment of redemption... We are plunged into the body of Christ, and in in a sense, water baptism illustrates that very plunging activity. And this is is known theologically as spirit baptism, in which we are placed into the body of Jesus Christ, made to drink of that one spirit. So there is a unity. There's There's a real organic unity that exists within the body of Jesus Christ, represented internationally and through the ages by people drawn from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. We are one. So, we are one relationally. We are one in purpose. Back to John 17. Now, this Christian unity is modeled for us here in John 17... Jesus refers to it uh, several places here in this prayer. It's modeled for us on the relationship between Father and Son. Look again and go back to verse 11. And there in verse 11, he, he says, I am no more in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me. And here's the point, that they may be one even as we are. Jesus is praying that, that the disciples, the apostles there, would, be, would have a oneness even at, like the oneness between Father and Son. Now, he's not talking there, obviously, about an ontological oneness that occurs within the Trinity where the, the triune God who eternally manifests himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not talking at that level, but he's talking about the relationship that they enjoyed as Jesus walked the earth. They were in perfect relation or fellowship and harmony one with another. They were united in purpose. They were united in relationship. And that is a model, he says, for what should exist between the apostles. Now, fast forward to verse 21, where the prayer widens beyond them and it comes to you and I. And, and there it is again. It says that they may all be one. He's talking about you and I, that we may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he's praying that there would be this unity, this oneness of relationship. Verse 22, same thing. He says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are. So there is a model of the unity that exists that we are to see Within the body of Christ, it it existed between Father and Son. It's a relationship. Now, just by way of footnote here, verse 22, he talks about the glory which you've given me. He says, the glory which you've given me, I've given it to them. Glory uh, frequently speaks of, of the revelation of God's character. That is his glory, the revelation of his character, the, uh, the explanation of who he is, his personage. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. They, they reveal something about God, who he is. And in the context here of, of uh, John 17, 
the, uh, the glory that Jesus says that you have given to me and I've given to them seems to be he's talking about the revelation of God, the, the, uh, the words that Jesus gave that explained who God was. He then turned over to the apostles who were going to turn them over to you and I. For example, if you look back into verse 8, you see that in the context here. It says, the words which you have given me, I have given to them. And you look ahead to verse 20, and it says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. So this, there is this, con, this, uh, this idea that this ongoing mission of which we are very much a part, of which our unity, as we will see, is critical to the accomplishment of, is, is a unity that is, that, is, that is established by a common commitment to this revelation of God, the words of Jesus. Think of it this way, perhaps. Think of, um, think of you and I like spokes on a bicycle wheel. You know, a, a, a bicycle wheel has got many, many spokes, right? And they all flow into a center hub. And that, that center hub is Jesus. And the spokes all flow in and flow out of Jesus, but they're also in relationship to each other. If you, if you only had spokes on one side of the tire, what would happen? Wouldn't work, would it? Okay? So there's an interrelatedness as well in the spokes. They're, they're all together flowing in and out of the hub, but they, they support the tire. They're united in purpose. They're united in relationship to the hub in the middle, and they enable the tire to accomplish its purpose. If you don't like that analogy, then uh, forget it, and we'll keep moving on, okay? <laughs> but you try to ride a bicycle with only half the spokes. How, let me ask you just another question. You know, we've, we've said, what is Christian unity? Another question, how is it achieved? How is Christian unity achieved? As I said, it, it is a oneness that is generated by the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, brought about, and let me just kind of begin to answer it this way, it is brought about as people turn from their sin and embrace the truth about who Jesus Christ is. They embrace His witness. Back in John 15, still all part of this upper room discourse, verses 26-27, Jesus said there that when the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of Me. And you will bear witness also because you have been with Me from the beginning. There is, there is a strong emphasis here on this nature of ongoing witness or ongoing ministry of revelation or, or, or um, making plain or making known who God is. And so the unity that Jesus is praying for here amongst the church through the ages is a unity that, that finds its origination in a common commitment to the apostolic message. The Word of God, the revelation of God the Father given first by Jesus the Son, entrusted then to His eleven apostles, and through them, verse 20, look at it, all right? For those who will believe in me through what? Through their Word. It's like a relay race. One runner runs their leg of the race carrying the baton, right? 
And when they arrive at the, at the pass-off point, they keep running full bore. And the other one comes up to speed and reaches out and grabs onto the baton. And the first runner peels off to the side and the next one just keeps on running, right? And it over and over and over again. And so that's what's going on here. This notion of an ongoing baton handoff. Again, look at verse 20 very carefully with me. Jesus has been praying for the 11. In verse 20, he says, I don't ask in behalf of these alone. I'm not now just praying on behalf of these 11, but I've got more on my mind than just them. It's an amazing thought, by the way. (laughs) You think about that. He's on his way to the cross. And he's got more on his mind than just his small band. He's got you and I on his mind, too. He says, uh, I don't pray on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. As, the, as I have given to them, they now turn and give to others. And, as, and they will in turn give to others who will in turn give to others. And there will be this ongoing ministry or mission. How do we have their word? It's like asking who's buried in Grant's tomb, right? I mean, it's kind of an obvious question. We have the apostles' word here for us, don't we? We are reading a gospel account of the life of Jesus penned by the apostle John. One of the ones whom Jesus had prayed for and who, whom, to whom he had entrusted the revelation of God. And we believe through their word. Now, their word was first given orally. But it didn't take them very long to to recognize they're not going to be able to tell everybody by word of mouth. And so shortly after they began this ministry of, of expanding the truth about Christ, they reduced it to writing. And so within a matter of a couple of decades, we have the early gospel accounts of who Jesus was. Matthew, written perhaps as early as AD 50, less than two decades after the crucifixion. And it has been reduced to writing, beloved, and it is that which the believers of the generations to follow, right up into our age, that's what we have. We have this word. So there is a unity, as I alluded to earlier, that flows through this passage. Again, verse 8, look at it again and see if if I can thread this together for you. Verse 8, the words which you gave me, I gave to them. Verse 18, As you sent me, I have sent them. Verse 20, I don't ask on these behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one, and that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you see it? John 1.18 says, Jesus came into the world to explain the Father. God became man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth in order to explain God to man and the way of salvation and to purchase the atonement necessary to, for man to, to be reconciled back to his creator. For three years, Jesus walked and talked. He ate and he slept and he ministered with a group of men. And he entrusted to them 
the revelation of God the Father. He told them, John says later at the end of his gospel, that if everything Jesus said and did were written down, not even the world itself would contain all the books that could be written to record all that he had told them. And then earlier that night, he says there, I'm leaving, but there's a comforter coming. And this comforter will bring back to your remembrance all the things that I have told you. And all those things that I have told you, you will pass on to another generation. And because you're not going to live forever in this body on this earth to be able to do it orally, you're going to reduce it to writing and it's going to be passed on from generation to generation in written form. It's called the Bible. It's called the Bible. The result of that is Christian unity. Christian unity. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It is through the scriptures that people come to a saving understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they come to that place where they entrust themselves by faith to the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf, the Spirit, they are baptized in the Spirit, and Jesus places them into His body through Spirit baptism, and they become organically one with Him and externally united around His Word. Go with me to 1 John chapter 1 and let me demonstrate to you that that is indeed not just David's understanding, but was the Apostle John's understanding of what Christ was saying. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is written many years later. And John writes as follows. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, And the life was manifested or made known, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, and here it is, beloved, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be complete. John is saying, listen, we have seen, we have handled, we have had revealed to us the truth. We are in fellowship with God the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you would like to join our fellowship, it would make our joy complete. We would love to have you be part of our clique. Okay? And the way you get in is by attaching yourself to the witness that we give to you. You want to know God the Father? You want to know Jesus the Son? We know Him. And you can know Him too only through our Word. Only through our word. We are the gatekeepers to the relationship with the creator of the universe. And we have reduced it all down to writing. 
And beloved, you're holding it on your lap this morning. You want to enter into relationship with the God of the universe? There is only one relationship to be had. And there is only one way to enter into it. You join them. And by the way, uh, and I love uh, John, but uh, over in chapter 2, verse 19, what happens, by the way, if you don't like their click? Verse 19, 1 John 2. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all were not of us. And by the way, if you just look up to verse 18, he says, Children, it's the last hour, and just as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have arisen. And from this, we know that it's the last hour. Those that go out from us, those that don't remain with us, those are the Antichrists. Plural. You want to know God? There is only one way to know God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. How do you know that he said that? You know it because the Apostle John wrote it down and told you that he said that. You weren't there. So Jesus makes an exclusive claim that the only way to enter into relationship with the creator of the universe is through him. And the only way you know about that exclusive claim is through the word of his apostles, his messengers. It is a very narrow way. Beloved, that means that at its heart, Christianity is creedal. It is creedal. It is, the, it is the belief and adherence to a set of doctrines. Many people would like to say doctrine divides. Well, you're right, it does. Doctrine divides believers from unbelievers. Okay? Now, unfortunately, we live in a fallen world and it's not perfect. Doctrine does divide believers from believers. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. We have to. I'm going on vacation. <laughs> Where are the ushers? Lock the doors. I think I have 15 minutes in the bank still to use, don't I? Anyway. Uh, Christianity is creedal. It is doctrinal. It is a set of propositional truths that have to be understood. They have to be believed. They have to be embraced. It's not come any way you want to come. There's only one way to come, and it has, it's through them. I mean, listen to just, I'm just going to blow through a few of these. I don't even turn there. Jude, verse 3. Jude says, contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Definite article, the faith. Not one of many, there's only one faith. Delivered once and for all. Contend earnestly for it. Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 4, 6. He says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. 1 Timothy 6.3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, they're outside. 
2 Timothy 2, 2, And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Pass the baton along. One of my favorites, 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 and 3, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth. And will turn aside to myths. Beloved, there is, a, there is, a, um, there is an apostolic deposit a deposit of truth given from Christ to the eleven and from them through his word where it has been inscripturated. It is now ours. And we move it on. We pass it on. Christianity is like a football team. You knew I'd get that in there somehow. It's like a football team. Okay? There's only one playbook. The whole team has the same playbook and they learn the same plays. So, what are the implications? Man, the implications of this are huge. Well, let me just give you a few of them. One is that uh, hermeneutics, that is proper interpretation of the Scripture, is critical. John MacArthur said one time, and I liked it, he said, the meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. The meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. If you don't have the right meaning, you do not have the Scripture. One meaning. Many applications, but only one meaning. We don't bend the truth of the Scripture. The truth of the Scripture bends us. Romans 12, verse 2. Ephesians 4.11 talks about pastor teachers given to the church, right? To mature the saints. We normally think of that in the context of our own day, right? Who's my pastor? I think the necessary implication is that God has given pastor teachers to the church for the last 2,000 years. And they have been given to the church to help mature the saints. What do I mean? I mean, open up the great works of the pastor teachers of old and read them. And probably most serious of all this is that those that reject sound doctrine are at best disobedient. At worst, they're lost. Sound doctrine is huge. Let me ask you another question. Can this Christian unity be destroyed? Can Christian unity be destroyed? Well, the answer is yes and no. Start with a no. Ultimately, no. Ultimately, no, it can't. I mean, Jesus always prayed according to the Father's will. Would you grant me that? Son of God, perfect Son of God, praying in accordance with the Father's will? Scripture says that if you pray in accordance with His will, then He hears you. It means He answers your prayers. Okay? Jesus prayed for our unity. Therefore, can our unity be ultimately destroyed? The answer, no. Beyond that, beloved, in order for Christian unity to be ultimately destroyed, it would necessitate the removal of someone from the body of Christ... Romans chapter 8 prohibits all such possibilities. 
So ultimately, it cannot be destroyed, but organizationally and relationally, it can be destroyed or severely damaged. For example, over in Ephesians chapter 4, you can go ahead and turn there. Notice in Ephesians 4, after Paul, in the early part of the book, first three chapters, has made some very serious and and weighty theological arguments about the unity of the body of Christ. He turns in verse uh, chapter 4 to the implications of all that, and he begins to deal with organizational and relational unity. And verse 3 says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is a requirement, there is a, a responsibility that accrues to all followers of Jesus Christ to preserve this unity. This relational unity, this organizational unity that can be damaged in this life. You know, again, think of it this way. The, the church is drawn from people from all over the world. Come from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of, of uh, social uh, structures, all kinds of previous heritages. They have different food likes and dislikes. They have different languages, clearly. There are men and there are women. There are old. There are young. There are all kinds of reasons for disunity to occur. So we need to be diligent to preserve that which has been theologically created. We need to work at it on the physical level, the horizontal level. There are natural boundaries that inhibit it. We need to overcome those natural boundaries. And, and one of the biggest inhibitors for Christian unity on the, on the horizontal, organizational, relational level is the sin of pride. It is our pride and it is our arrogance that is at war with our unity. And so we must deal with it. We must deal with it. Notice here, while we're in chapter 4, look how the Apostle Paul tells them, Ephesians 4, to deal with it. He says, walk in a manner, verse 1, worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now, here's how you deal with it. All humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. That means uh, squash your pride. Because as long as you feed it, Christian unity will suffer. You find the same message over in Philippians 2, verse 2. There he reduces it down and he basically says, listen, you want Christian unity? Prefer others above yourself. Consider their needs, their likes, their dislikes more important than your own. Squash your pride. Now, there are organizational problems to unity that exist over doctrine. I will acknowledge that. They exist for the most part because of the misinterpretation of the Scriptures. And that's the bottom line. Is that people have, somebody has cut it wrong. I mean, Jesus is either coming before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation. He's not coming three times. Okay? He's just not. Okay? So, two of the three have it wrong or potentially all three have it wrong. But somebody's got it wrong. We need to work hard at understanding the Scriptures. And, you know, I don't want to get letters. 
So don't understand, don't, don't understand me to say that I've got it all right, okay? Let me just settle that one. I don't have it all right, but I don't know where I have it wrong, okay? I mean, I just, I just don't. I'm just telling you that, you know, that's the way it is. If I knew where I had it wrong, I would change, okay? But I don't know where it's wrong, but I'm willing to concede that I probably have some things wrong. So it is a shame. It is a shame that there is so much organizational disunity in the church. But the solution to it is not to just minimize doctrine. Let's just all rally around one creedal statement. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? You know, let's just all agree to that, and then we'll all be one big happy family. And that completely goes against the thread of John 17. So the, the answer is not to minimize doctrine, to create an artificial organizational unity. That's not the solution. The solution is to work very, very hard at the understanding of the Scriptures and to hold the truths, particularly truths of the end times, which have not yet worked themselves out with a measure of charity. But that doesn't mean you can't still have strong opinions. Okay? So, doctrinal unity. Turn back to John 17. Another question for you in this whole thematic topic of unity, and that is, what is the purpose of, Christ, of Christian unity? Why is Christian unity so important? Why was it so important to occupy the prayers of our Savior in the final moments of his life? Well, the answer is for us right here in the text. Verse 21, last clause, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, in the middle, that the world may know that you have sent me. Why is Christian unity so important? What is the purpose of it? The purpose of Christian unity is evangelism. It is evangelism. Try to participate in an evangelistic activity or endeavor in a church that is highly disunified. When people are, you know, snapping at one another and, and nipping each other's heels and speaking gossip one about another. Forget it. Why in the world would someone who is an unbeliever want to become a part of that? Jesus said, by the way, and this is a, a related and, and closely related theme over in John 13, earlier in the evening... Verse 34, 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What is to characterize this body of Christ that is, that is organically, ontologically one in the Spirit? It is, a, it is love and it is unity. And notice that, uh, that Jesus says here that this unity is, is compelling. That the world may believe. That's a purpose clause. Unity will bring the world to their senses. It is compelling. It is, it is unworldly. It is unexplainable outside of the work of Jesus Christ. This is not the Kiwanis Club or the Elks or the local Little League Fellowship, you know, where, 
where you, people just sort of get together and, and somewhat get along around some thing they're doing. Okay? This is taking people that come from all over the place. And, you know, I have a great position here to look out, and I can look across this whole great big room, and I can see people that are drawn from all over the place. And I know many of you, and I know your backgrounds. Okay? You are not naturally one. You would not all get here and come together unless there was some compelling reason to unify you together. That compelling reason is the truth of Jesus Christ. Unity and love within the body of Christ, beloved, beautifies the gospel. It makes it winsome. It makes it compelling. It makes it attractive. Truth, yes. Absolutely. It is truth. It is, an, it, is a, it is a body of truth. But it is not truth in a cold, sterile, academic setting. It is, it is in the warmth of love. I mean, think about it this way. I could serve you a steak. Be a good piece of meat, too. Right? I could take it off the grill and kind of throw it on a board. Right? And just hand it to you. No silverware, nothing. And say, enjoy it. Or I could take a steak off the grill and put it on a nice, pretty plate. A little garnishment on the side. You know, mashed potatoes, sour cream, chives. However you like it. Some little veggies for color. Okay. Well, maybe you like to eat them, but anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's attractive. It's, it's winsome. The stake of the Word of God, I mean, the truth, it has to, you know, it, it's packaged in a, in, in, and presented in a context of love and unity. By the way, uh, let me just show you something real quick. Notice over to, uh, go, go with me quickly to Acts chapter 6. Ron, if we don't get to this last song, we can see it next week, can we? All right. Acts 6. Acts 6 is, a, is just an amazing chapter here in, the, in this unfolding narrative about the, the worldwide expansion of the gospel. In Acts 6, you know it well. I mean, there's a problem there in the church in Jerusalem, right? There are widows are being overlooked in the, in the daily distribution. There's a disunity growing within the body of Christ there, and it's going to rip this brand new fledgling work right in half. It's going to shatter it unless something is done. And so the apostles come together and they, they pray, and then, you know, we go through the whole thing. We don't have time to, to exegete Acts 6. But what I want you to see is when they solve the problem, the organizational relational problem of unity, and the widows are again being taken care of, look at verse 7. That's what I want you to see. Verse 7. Notice how Luke sums it up. He says, And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. There is a beautifying effect to, to Christian unity and love that enhances the gospel's effect. That's the way God has designed it. This is not a human marketing technique. This is the way God has hardwired His universe. So, beloved, unity, love within the body, it's huge. It's huge. We cannot do effective evangelism without it. It will not happen. If we want to reach this community for Jesus Christ, there has got to be a, an overwhelming and all-pervading sense of love and unity within this body. 
And that means that we need to crucify our pride. And to think more of the other person than we think of us. Count their preferences higher than ours. It's critical. Or we'll talk about evangelism till the cows come home and nothing will ever happen. When will Christian unity be complete? My last question for you here. When will Christian unity be complete? Back in John 17. The answer is that the, the, the organizational, the relational unity that, that is disrupted in this life, clearly, will only finally and fully be brought to the fruition that exists ontologically when Jesus Christ returns and takes His bride to be with Himself and puts us into those glorified bodies in which we no longer struggle with the effects of sin. When that has been done with, then the unity will be full and complete. And that really leads me to my fifth observation, verses 24 and 26. And we're going to have to move through it quickly here. But notice what Jesus prays here, verse 24, John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory which you have given to me, for you have loved me for the foundation of the world. Earlier that evening in John 14, Jesus addresses his disciples, verses 1 and following. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. John 17, verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What was he praying? He was saying, take me home. Through the cross and take me home. And in John 14, he says, don't be troubled about it. Because if I go, and I am, I will prepare a place for you. And if I do so, I will come and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be always. What brings about the final unification of the body of Christ in its full and complete sense? It is the rapture of the church. It is when Jesus Christ comes to fulfill the promise that he made in John 14 that he will take us to be with him. He is ensuring their destiny. When he prays in verse 24, I desire them to be with me. Guess what? We are going to be with him. It will come true. According to 1 John verse, chapter 3, verse 2, he said, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. We're going to be changed in a moment. The twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will Join them to meet them in the clouds, right? And thus we shall always be with the Lord. First Thess 4. Jesus ensures our destiny by praying for our rapture. When he comes and takes us to be with himself, that's when all the disunity will melt away. All right, how do we apply all this to the time that remains? Let me offer you a couple suggestions for your prayer life as I did last week. These are huge truths, and admittedly, we've not exhausted them. 
But let me make a couple suggestions to you. One, pray for growth in holiness and Christian service. Pray for yourself for a growth in holiness and Christian service. Pray for me. You want to pray for me? Pray that I would grow in my holiness and in my service to Jesus Christ. Pray for my humility. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. I long to hear these words. I hope you do too. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter the joy of your Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. Beyond that, pray for Christ's return. Dennis did that earlier for us this morning. We should do that more often. We should pray that the Lord would return. Because it is in His return, beloved, to sweep up His church and to gather us into glory that all the last vestiges of sin that continue to dog us will be dealt with. That we will receive the glorified body like unto His. And that the unity that is, that is, that is theologically and ontologically true of us and that it is, it is also relationally and organizationally true but somewhat damaged will be made complete. We will be on the outside what we are on the inside. Pray for Christ's return. Pray for Him to come and take His church. To glorify Himself. To receive the bride unto Him. Pray that He would come and put down the wicked. Paul prays like that. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Quickly as I finish here, verses 25 and 26. Jesus finishes out his prayer here and he, he talks about love. He says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And, and these have known that you have sent me. Father, my mission is a success even though they're, all I can point to is these 11. My mission is still a success. The world has ignored me. These have not. And I have made your name known to them. I have, I have faithfully passed on what you've given. And I will make it known in a continuing basis through my spirit that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That is, that the love of God may be in us and among us. There is no more Back up. There is no stronger possible witness to the truth of Jesus Christ than the love of a Father should have brought in our hearts. If you're with us this morning and you don't know that love, maybe you're here for reasons, who knows? You just wandered in, maybe you've come for a while. Seems like a reasonably nice group of people, but. That's way more than that. Do you know Jesus Christ personally? Have you confessed to Him that you have sinned against Him in thought, word, and deed? Have you called out to Him to save you? Lord Jesus, save me.
The Bible says if you will do such things, then God indeed will save you and will make you part of the body of Christ. After we finish here, there will be some folks standing over here by this lighted cross, as we try to do every week. If you have spiritual questions, excuse me, questions that you want or need answered, you will come after the service, and they will be happy to open the apostolic word with you okay, and minister to you. Let me pray. God, our Father, the challenge is immense. Christian unity and love is nothing that we can work up in our own strength or power. We can't just suck it up and pretend. But it takes the amazing work of transformation in our hearts to to change us from selfish, self-biased sinners to walking, talking, breathing ministers for Christ. We pray your Holy Spirit would continue the work he's begun in us. We pray that he would take the hammer and chisel of the word of God and he would chip off those ragged edges, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ that we could be like our Savior. Dear Father, we pray that you'd be pleased to use us to continue that long line of faithful witnesses that began back there in that upper room with those 11 men. That the truth would flow through our lips and lives to the glory of God the Father. We pray in Jesus' name.